I love that we are finally getting to this episode because this passage was requested early on by multiple people. And I'm going to be real honest and open here. I just had never, I'm sure I've read this because I've read the whole Bible multiple times, but it's like not super long, the passage we're going to be discussing. Mm -hmm. And it is super problematic. But of course, growing up in, you know, the way we did, we just kind of gloss over it. It was like, oh, well, that happened. Okay, moving on. Um, so yeah. Were you familiar with this passage? When I read it, I, I, it like rang a bell in the back of my mind, but if you had just asked me, can you describe what happened with Elisha and the bears? I would have said, no, I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. So like similar to me. Yep. But we're talking about Elisha and bears and mauling, mauling, not like shopping. That's, that would be great, but no mauling with a U, M A U L I N G, a terrible situation, which I'm giving away some of our Bible game, but um, because that's in our Bible game, but it's all right. Let's start with our Bible game. Is it the Bible or is it from a movie? The first one, a deity makes ravens bring food to a prophet hiding out by a creek. This isn't the Bible. I think it was Elijah, not Elisha. It is. You're so good. Yes. Okay. A man takes revenge on his father-in-law by tying the tails of 300 foxes together in pairs, attaching a torch between each pair of tails. And when he caught the torches on fire, the foxes ran through the grain fields of his father-in-law's people and all their grain was burned to the ground. This is also in the Bible. Jenny, you were on fire. (laughs) Do you see what I did there? I didn't even mean to do that. Yes. Whoa. Yes. Was this, does does this have to do with... Oh, his father-in-law. Like David or Saul or something? Not David or Saul, but it's in Judges. Does that help? Uh, No. No. (laughs) It's Samson. Oh, It's Samson did this. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Samson did this. I'm trying to remember what was the deal. I think the father-in-law wasn't wanting Samson to be with his daughter. I mean, I don't think that's the best. I, I wouldn't probably take that approach to mend family relations but whatever yeah you know and how do you find 300 also that i mean there's a lot lot of questions questions in that yes (laughs) okay next one while he is scouting game a man is mauled and left nearly dead by a female bear guarding her cubs his companions worried for their life and seeing that he is facing life-threatening wounds agree to mercy kill him uh I don't know. I'm going to go not in the Bible, but I don't know. You are correct. This is from The Revenant. I will say when I was looking up trying to find trivia um, or trying to find things for this, I went like deep diving into things about The Revenant (laughs) and I've never seen it. I don't think I will actually. I don't think it'll be good for me to see it because it's kind of like intense. But that is in The Revenant. And because of this week's material, I was thinking about Mm -hmm. bears. So, all right. Our last question. As a prophet makes his way from Jericho to Bethel, a mean-spirited group of young men from town begin mocking him. Get out of here, Baldy. Whether they teased him because they didn't want to get another lecture on morality or they taunted him about getting swept up into heaven like his predecessor, this prophet curses them in the name of the Lord. And though his curse may or may not have included summoning predatory animals, two female bears come out of the woods and mall 42 of the cynical boys this is also from the bible 
<laughs> if you got this wrong, I'm... you're like, you clearly did, you did no research. <laughs> <laughs> this is exactly what we are talking about today. A very strange passage in the Bible. It is from Second Kings 2. It's only two verses where this incident happens, 23 through 25. This passage seems so weird. It's almost like my brain doesn't even process that this could happen or it seems almost in the realm of fable yeah. so could you give us a little you you had found some bear trivia we had considered doing that mm-hmm. for a bible game and we decided to keep both because i think it kind of reminds us that bears are a big deal mm-hmm. and if this actually happened it would have been pretty graphic so can you tell us what you found absolutely so five facts about bears and i didn't research what kind of bears would have been in this story this is just facts about bears as a general species so number one a polar bear's stomach can hold 150 pounds so that's a lot that's <laughs> two bears have been known to eat almost anything including snowmobile seats engine oil and rubber boots that seems very specific i don't know <laughs> i guess maybe this is also like i don't know maybe they were hungry like hungry in the winter but they should be hibernating i guess i don't know mm. okay yeah <laughs> most bears have 42 teeth which is about 10 more than people have a bear's canines can reach 1.5 inches long so that's substantial mm. uh, good for ripping and shredding yeah. i guess uh, in comparison, a human's canines are less than half an inch long. The claws on the front feet of bears are longer than the claws on the back feet, and some large bears have claws almost five inches long, which that could do a lot of damage. Okay. Yeah. Uh, my last fact is that bears can run up to 40 miles per hour, which is fast enough to catch a running horse. To put this into perspective, the fastest known human alive today is Usain Bolt, who can only run measly 27 miles per hour. So. so basically you're out of luck and at that point you, you need to know your lose. tactics and you need to know your bears right you need to know if you play dead or if you attack back or if you try and make yourself like big my husband knows all this stuff he went over this with me at one point i know there's differences between like grizzly bear and black bear but how would you know if it's a grizzly or a black bear like i don't think i can tell well he can identify them but i could not so i guess it's just 50 50 if we do the right thing I don't know. It, uh, chances are probably less than that for me because it would just include screaming, which is probably never it, the right yeah. response. Getting to our passage, Second mm-hmm. Kings 2, 23 through 25. To start out with, Elisha is the successor of Elijah, very famous Old Testament prophet. They both are famous, but I would say Elijah's more famous. Mm-hmm. Um, Elijah really spoke against King Ahab, really had some famous Old Testament stories. And our passage comes right after Elijah is taken up into heaven in a whirlwind in this very dramatic way. And Elisha has been given the torch, so Mm -hmm. to speak, of the prophet office, right? And he is starting on his new journey of not being under this master now, but being the prophet. Shortly after that happens, at least in the narrative, I don't know exactly how much time Mm -hmm. was after that, we read this really kind of odd little section about what happened to Elisha when he was traveling. So I'm going to read 2 Kings 2, 23 through 25. It says, he, who's Elisha, 
went up from there to Bethel. And while he was going up on the way, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him, saying, Go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. And he turned around, and when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And two she-bears came out of the woods and tore 42 of the boys. From there, he went on to Mount Carmel. And from there, he returned to Samaria. So, you know, just a little brief travel log right. here. Uh, <laughs> Elisha's travels. So, yeah, it's... I feel like this is just such an odd thing. It's like a very odd, like, why find. is this tidbit even in the Bible, kind of? I don't know. Like, yeah, and I don't know about you. I, I didn't never really had it explained to me or interpreted that I can remember. I just, I don't feel like this was even really ever addressed in my upbringing anyway. Yeah, it's like I read it because, like you, like I read the Bible, the whole Bible. So at some point I read it and probably thought, huh, that's strange. And then just kind of kept on going. Went on. <laughs> So what did you find as far as the Jewish interpretation? So uh, the first thing I came across starting this research is that what is translated in English as little boys has more than just one meaning. It also is a word that could be used to refer to those without moral conscience. And so it could refer to any immoral mm. person. So that kind of plays into this interpretation. So I'm putting it here, but I'll talk a little bit more about that later on. So... The Jewish tradition kind of tells us a little bit more about the context, adds more to the story. And okay. it says that before the incident where Elisha is mocked by the young men, he performed a miracle purifying water in Jericho. So uh, the strand of Jewish tradition has claimed that these young men from Bethel have been making a business out of bringing good water into Jericho. And by purifying the water there, the prophet had destroyed their business. So they were a little salty. Uh, their, okay. Yeah. Their water cartel could no longer take advantage of the situation, and that was one of the main reasons they descended upon Elisha. So, if you think about it that way, with this interpretation in mind, it's a gang of criminals that's coming upon him instead of little boys. And they're criminals who are mad okay. because they destroyed their, their business. And his life potentially could be in danger. Correct. Correct. In that, in that mindset, especially if, if there's 42 that get mauled, and that might not even be the full number. There was a lot, sounds like. Correct. Um, and so they come out, and they're telling Elijah to go up or go away. And this is the same word that was used to describe um, Elijah's being taken up into heaven. So you could interpret that as, like, basically telling him to, like, go and die or something like mm. that. So that's being yeah. very threatening. So if you had more than 40 members of a gang surrounding you and telling you that uh, they think you should die, you might feel that your life and safety is being threatened. So if that's what's going on, they're threatening Elijah uh, when he curses them and God's response is to send bears to kill or maul 42 of them, but who knows how many more there were potentially. Um, mm -hmm. then that doesn't seem so crazy. It's more like it's God protecting his prophet versus, you know, just retaliating against young children for being insulting. Yeah. So that's kind of the first story in Jewish tradition. The next part of Jewish tradition that helps us understand the story a little bit better is that while they accept everything that I said about the story above, about the water cartel and the gang, that sort of thing, they also say that Elisha's reaction was an overreaction. And 
God did not mm. approve of Elisha's actions and he punished him. Uh, in the Talmud, it states that illnesses plagued Elisha throughout his life and they were a punishment for his tendency to overreact to things. What? That's confusing to me because God did send the bears. So if Elisha overreacted, maybe you shouldn't have sent the bears. Then, then don't. don't send the bears. Yeah. I do wonder, though, if he just got this office, right? Mm of being the prophet if it's like well now we have to i wonder if it was an idea of if you know taking this all literally mm -hmm. right if god says well i made you a prophet so now people do need to see that your word is valid for my name's sake mm -hmm. i wonder if there's anything like that i don't know yeah do you, does that make sense because but then that also makes it seem like elisha's the one who made it happen we don't have the words of the curse, so we don't know if he mentioned bears and if God, that was the reason God did it. He said, yeah, I think you did overreact and I don't think you need to keep yourself in check. So here's this kind of thorn in your flesh situation, but also I'm going to honor your mm. request. I don't know. Uh, yeah. So those are two kind of interpretations and they are based on taking the story as fact and not as allegory, mm -hmm. which is the third Jewish tradition I'm going to hit on is that this is an allegory. And this strand of tradition believes that these verses mean that the youth were cut off from Israel for their crimes against their countrymen, and they were essentially abandoned mm. in the wilderness, uh, similar to early American colonial expulsions from towns and settlements. So I guess that doesn't really seem super reasonable to me, but... Uh, if you're going to take it as... Yeah, inerrant, I don't know. I, I'm really interested this season mm -hmm. by some of these Jewish understandings because I think I assumed that they took everything extremely literally. Mm. And I'm realizing some don't. And in fact, there's a wide variety of interpretation with in Judaism yes. over some of these things, which I didn't realize. That one just doesn't sit super well with me as far as being credible. But... It seems maybe out of out of place for what you would expect for the genre. Yeah. Yes, what you're exactly. Saying? But it does solve the problem very neatly. It's like, well, that's yeah, easy. That's we solved the problem of why this happened to young children. <laughs> we just It's an allegory. Because it didn't, it really, didn't really happen. happen. <laughs> yeah. So those were the Jewish traditions that I want to touch on. So you also found some translation errors, right? Which this is really fascinating mm -hmm. to me. So yeah, let us know what you found as far as that goes. Yes. So I found it very interesting that it's extremely common, not only in popular presentations of the story, but in almost all English translations, that when we read this story, the word that they've used to translate as children or boys or youths, this actually isn't the best translation of this word. There is a noun, a Hebrew noun, that's spelled N-A apostrophe A-R, and I'm not going to try to pronounce it. But that is the word that we in English would read that as children or boys. That's what we're talking about. And this is a really mm -hmm. versatile uh, Hebrew word. And it's translated different ways. In Greek, the same word in a apostrophe A-R is translated 16 different ways in, into Greek. And some mm -hmm. of these usages could be brought under the general category of young man. But we can also like just think about like if I say young man... In English, that can mean a lot of different things, potentially. It can mean someone from mm, yeah. childhood into their early 20s. Older guys are often like, how are you doing, young man? And it's like, maybe it's someone, I mean, younger mm -hmm. than them, even if they're the person's in their 40s or something. Uh, yeah. 
uh, it can even be used, uh, going back to its Hebrew usage, this word can also be used as a pejorative. And so it can kind of be like putting someone back in their place. Like if they're behaving arrogantly, like, oh, you know, young man, like, oh. you, you know, know your place. You don't need to be talking to me like that, that kind of idea. So that doesn't, like, that, does that even mean that they're young at all? Maybe not. Maybe it was used in the pejorative. So going back to the second reason that this word has been mistranslated is that there's an adjective added to it. And again, I'm just going to spell the adjective for you. It's Q-A-T-A-N. And like hmm. the base meaning of this adjective is little or small. And so that's kind of where you might get the little children if you just take it that way. But if you look at how okay. this adjective is actually used, it often does not indicate a small size. It's the most prominent usages. It indicates either youth or in insignificance. Okay. So this could mean that uh, they're young or they're low ranking. So based on usage throughout the Hebrew scriptures, the picture is of Elisha on the road encountering a reasonably large group of young Israelite officials, possibly even low ranking military officials. I wonder if it's almost like a slam mm -hmm. to like these low lives. Yeah, like these insignificant low lives who, especially, I, I don't know this exactly, but I think age is respected in Hebrew culture. And so if you're calling someone young, again, like what you're saying, it's kind of a slam. It's like you don't have respect because mm. you're young. The next thing I'm going to touch on is that the insult bald head is not just someone is balding, so we're going to call out their baldness. Because, again, that's like a super weird insult. Oh, hey, baldy. But uh, the term which is translated as bald head is not the usual term that you would apply just to the normal, normal balding of aging men. It is instead a term that refers to those suffering from a leprous condition and is therefore ceremonially impure or unclean. So it's not only necessarily a term of mockery, but also of religious and societal ostracism and condemnation directed at a prophet of Yahweh. So they're being hmm. doubly insulting by implying that he is religiously unclean. Interesting. Yeah, you definitely wouldn't necessarily think that, especially coming from the Christian standpoint. Mm -hmm. It just seems like something kind of rude, not right. something... Right, it's kind of like... Like derogatory. derogatory. That's the correct word. So if you take yeah. all this together, um, when the she bears emerge from the forest, and it's it's not to slaughter children for the impiety of making jokes at the prophet's expense. It's not to avenge mm -hmm. Elisha's honor. They probably emerge to protect Elisha and to save his life from the ancient Israelite equivalent of brown shirts. While no total number is given for these young officials. If the bear is mauled 42, that probably means that the number of men was actually bigger. So, if you look at it that way, it this is a story of God protecting his faithful prophet when he's being confronted and surrounded by this hostile gang who is trying to end his life. Yeah. That's just so interesting because you think about, again, the things I've been mm -hmm. frustrated with this season is just how the Bible is not on its head clear and i actually mm -hmm. had someone ask me this this week they said you know i love your season but it actually makes me wonder how accessible the bible really is because so many of us were taught yes. the bible's the answer is yes. all you need you get in there you're going to figure it out you're going to know what god wants for your life you're going to know the character of god 
and it's like in our english it's it kind of i mean i love doing this deep study but it kind of makes me think oh my gosh like how, how much, much do i not know just based on so like we have the uh, translation for young men the, the translation for the word small mm. translation for the word bald head and you say this is not some outlier like someone saying well if i really want to push it to make this mean what i want it to mean i can kind of say there's this one instance where this one word is translated this one way even though most of the time it's clearly translated this way i think this is honestly a case of mistranslation so when we read it in english mm. it doesn't mean what it actually means and that's scary because how much like you don't know what you don't yeah. know yeah it's tricky it's tricky when thinking about how to how to trust the bible and i don't mean like how could i ever trust the bible i mean like in what ways are we going to trust the bible and in what ways will we uh hold it a little bit loosely and i think sometimes we like you said we don't know what we Mm -hmm. don't know when it comes to translation a lot of the time and a passage like this if i just pull out my you know Mm -hmm. esv sounds like a an example of divine vengeance Mm which I want to actually touch on because when I was looking up kind of a Christian perspective, that came up over and over. I actually didn't, I was surprised. I didn't see as much about um, the mistranslations. Granted, you know, I didn't, I didn't maybe go as deep as some could. And I'm sure Christians have pulled from that as well. But a lot of people think it's divine vengeance. Okay. I, I haven't looked at your notes, so I am excited to hear what you have because when I was researching this, I was like, Oh no, we're going to have the same exact notes. They're going to be, they're just going to be the same because, um, I did a lot of like what I found was from a Catholic resource and an Orthodox resource. And I think I, from an, I think an evangelical, I read an evangelical one that kind of touched on all these things. It's a translation mistake first and foremost. Really? There is, so they all said that yeah, first? Yeah, like, that that, like the main thing we need to get from the story is that we're translating these words incorrectly. And so when you put it in its proper context, it's way less of an issue. I'm wondering if this is kind of an evangelical thing then, maybe. And like I said, my list of resources was not exhaustive. So I could be speaking out of turn to say that. But I wonder if, you know. I don't. I don't think you're wrong. I think... Even though I started doing research, I found this really easily. I would not be surprised if what you found is more of the prevalent understanding. And I just think. Or maybe of even the layman's layman's understanding. understanding. To say, yeah, even if if a a pastor might know, Mm -hmm. I think a lot of us, me included, read this and we're like, God, you're being so Yeah, like you can't. How can you be (laughs) just? How can this be morally? Yes. valid if you're the the crime the punishment doesn't seem to fit the crime and even if we can explain this one away which i think we can i think you can make a good reason a good case for this not being necessarily divine Mm -hmm. revenge or Mm -hmm. vengeance i do think that is something that comes up in the old testament uh that is not always so easy to explain away and so i I did want to touch on it today I looked up Vengeance by Merriam-Webster just to make sure we're kind of on the same page as what we are meaning when we say that. And Merriam-Webster says it's a punishment inflicted in retaliation for an injury or offense. And I also thought it was important to say the phrase with a vengeance is a phrase indicating an extreme or excessive degree. Because I think when I think about vengeance, I don't think of it as justice usually, personally. I think of it as something extreme or excessive. So people might have some different meanings there. Um, Same kind of with the word revenge. Revenge, I think often, especially in Christian circles, has a a connotation of you stepping out Mm -hmm. of line. But not everyone thinks that. 
a lot of people tie revenge to justice uh, but I don't think especially within our framework we would we would say that was something it seems over the top negative yeah, that it's like it does yes, it's not equal yes. it's not an eye for an eye even it's 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 above it's beyond yeah that's how I would that's my understanding similar yeah and that's how a lot of people think of God in mm-hmm. the Old Testament. So an article, A Vengeful God by Stephen Uli, um, talks about this. So he brings up that many Christians make the same mistake as Marcion when reading passages like these. Marcion was deemed a heretic for believing there were two mm-hmm. gods. So the Old Testament God, in his opinion, is vengeful. And the God of the New Testament is merciful. The nice God came to deliver us from the not so nice God. And so in this article, Yuli would say, I've never met anyone who would express it exactly in these terms, but that's more or less what many people believe. Either they deny the essential unity of the Father and the Son by believing that the Father is in view in the Old Testament, whereas the Son is in view in the New Testament. Uh, That's how some people would explain the difference. Or they collapse the numerical distinction between the Father and Son by believing in a God who underwent a major personality change between the Testaments. Either way, he says Christians who Mm -hmm. think this way deny, wittingly or not, the doctrine of the Trinity. So he's kind of tying it to how we understand God. And I think a lot of people who think of there being a difference between how God acts in the Old Testament and New Testament are not consciously thinking about those implications. I can see how he gets there. definitely. I mean, I kind of was told, I don't remember from who or from when, but it was kind of idea of that, well, that's Old Testament God, where he's still God, but Mm. he's different kind of in a way. So I do think that is a common like way of handling the Old Testament is that, oh, that's God in the Old Testament. Yes. And I think a lot of times I've heard it said, well, Jesus came to fulfill the law as if that answers everything. But it's like, what does that actually Mm -hmm. mean? You know, what does that mean about how God views some of these things and how God's going to treat us now? I don't think that's always explained super well. Um, Sometimes we say Jesus fulfilled it in the story a little. I I, I don't know. That's been my experience somewhat. Um, So anyway, Yuli and many other more theologically conservative Christians believe that we actually need to reclaim the idea of divine Mm. vengeance. He writes, if there's anything the church needs today, it's to recapture a biblical vision of divine vengeance. It's fundamental to our understanding of the gospel. It's also fundamental to our worship. He quotes Spurgeon, who wrote, the terrible avenger is to be praised as well as the loving redeemer. Against this, the sympathy of man's evil heart with sin rebels. It cries out for an effeminate God (laughs) in whom pity has strangled justice. But the well-instructed servants of Jehovah praise him in all the aspects of his character, whether terrible or tender. And I do, as much as I don't love this (laughs) quote, I do think words have changed slightly. Because when we hear effeminate, we often think, like, you are being very um, not politically correct. And then even when he says... That we need to praise God's character terrible or tender. I mm-hmm. think terrible in this case probably means harsher. Yes. Doesn't necessarily connote terrible as like an evil or wrong. Yeah, um, I'll, I'll give you that. I'll, I'll give you the terrible and tender I see. I don't <laughs> love Spurgeon. I'm not a huge Spurgeon fan. And this yeah. is, I think the when he says effeminate, I think he is probably talking about, um, you know, the, the differences between men and women and how women are weaker mm, there, yeah. you know, all these things. Interesting. So like, I, I, that, that doesn't even make it, that doesn't make it, it better. 
but I but I do think yeah. how you describe terrible is more accurate to the times when this was written. But yeah, yeah. I also just yeah. disagree with it in general, though. Re- I also love that we're hearing some purring oh gosh, from your. Do you want? I can try to move her, but she's wonderful cat. No, I love it. It's like calming me down about this. Don't cats you know, purr on like passage. a certain um, <laughs> like wavelength or something that's supposed to be calming, so she can just purr. Oh, there she goes. There she, goes. she will join us. Okay, so. How does downplaying divine vengeance affect our view of divine forgiveness? I'm going to read Yuli's take. Uh, He thinks many professing Christians now perceive God's forgiveness as an emotional change. So how does this play out? Well, many assume God is forgiving, meaning he isn't angry with them. He forgives them unconditionally. But this concept of forgiveness is completely foreign to scripture, he asserts. He says, biblical forgiveness isn't an emotion, but a transaction. How does God forgive? There are two essential ingredients, justice and repentance. God forgives those who repent on the basis of his satisfied justice in Christ's substitutionary sacrifice. So definitely we're on the penal substitution kind of train of thought here. If God's forgiveness should not need to be based on, you know, justice being satisfied. I know that's the evangelical take on things but i just Mm -hmm. don't think that's not forgiveness like forgiveness is when you don't get repaid for something forgiveness is when you Mm. choose to let it go regardless of the other person you you absorb absorb it in a sense sense. and so i just think this whole basis is wrong but i'm trying to let you i I have never really thought of it like that yeah i'm trying to i i'm trying to let get you get through this quote that is so pertinent to what we're talking about so please carry on (laughs) (laughs) no i think that's very imp- like forgiveness is actually honestly a hard mm-hmm. topic for me because I don't know that I, I I've always wrestled with what it means mm. for me to forgive someone in part because of trying to understand what Christ did and how forgiveness is applied to me and everything so I think that's actually very pertinent I think it actually God is much more loving and like I don't know more of what I think of as God when it's mm-hmm. not based on I took this from you but it's been satisfied it's like, well, no, it hasn't been yeah. satisfied. Like, hmm. we still needed Christ's sacrifice, yeah. but not only for this, for the substitutionary sacrifice. Like, that's not, that's not why we need it. We don't need it so that God can forgive. I don't think hmm. that his forgiveness is predicated on that. That's so interesting. And I think, I mean, this author continues to say uh, there's no restoration without forgiveness so clearly the opposite mind there's no forgiveness without repentance and he ends by saying god's forgiveness is conditional not unconditional and i will say you know i am glad he's putting this at least in concrete terms i mean i think more of our uh, theologically conservative Mm -hmm. friends would say yeah the unconditional love and forgiveness that is christian culture Mm -hmm. they would say because there is this dissonance you see between the theology we're taught about how forgiveness works and then how we're expected to forgive everyone. In my in my master's degree, my professor made a really compelling case for the fact that we are not required to forgive everyone. He said, if we are to forgive how God forgave us, it is only when they ask. It's only when they ask. It's only when they're sorry. It's It, it was just very interesting to think about because there's part of me that's like, yeah, I can see that from reading the Bible. Also, that doesn't seem any more of a higher standard than what humans already have been doing forever, you know? 
And I, I just, I hated it. And I was like, I can see where you're coming from if you're reading the Bible in the way you're reading it. Wow. You know what I mean? I do think when people deconstruct, they sometimes come to this conclusion anyway. The idea being, I shouldn't have to give you forgiveness. That shouldn't have to be the moral high road. Um, or what some people would say, because it's not... Uh, and maybe it comes down to your definition of what Probably, forgiveness yeah. is. But the idea being... Um, if God, as we're presented, doesn't forgive us until we ask, then we shouldn't have to do that for others. And it's just an interesting thought because there's part of me that says forgiveness, as many of us have been taught, is about releasing yourself yeah, a lot of the time from that yeah. anger and that hold. Now, the boundaries Absolutely. can still be there. Yeah. And I don't know that, I don't know if I would say you are, should be required to forgive. What do you, th- I mean, do you have any thoughts on that? Required to forgive I mean, as a Christian? I, honestly, I don't. I don't know. I haven't read, like I said, like I don't, a lot of the things you're talking about, like referencing, I was like, huh, I don't, I don't know what the Bible still says about forgiveness, but I do know in my own life that when I have trouble forgiving, it hurts me. The other person that I'm thinking of right now doesn't even know, like, and I will never see that. I will never oh, like, that's a yeah. hard boundary for me. I don't plan on ever seeing this person or interacting with them ever again, but it, I had to forgive mm-hmm. because it was impacting me. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't yeah. about them, but it was about me holding like this bitterness and anger toward them, um, and, and not in a good not not in a good way. Um, so I needed to yeah. forgive because it was hurting me so much. Regardless, like again, like this person mm. doesn't get a second chance. Um, some people and some things that you don't. I think you're talking about boundaries. You don't get second chances, but. I still had to let go of that. Well, and maybe some people would say, well, then that's mm. not forgiveness. That's acceptance or something. I don't know. Again, I don't like, that's know. Where, like, I don't exactly know how, how we define it or all those things that you were saying before. Yeah. Which is so funny because it's a word we use mm-hmm. so often in Christianity. Uh, that's one thing I've been thinking about lately, too, is just how many words we use that if we sit back, it's like, what are their actual yeah. definitions? And where are we coming up with them? But that's mm-hmm. a story for another day. Um, some Christians who kind of take mm-hmm. this approach do present it, and I think in mm-hmm. a softer light. So I found another article where it said, just as children will be disciplined or punished by their parents when they do something which they know is wrong, citizens of any country can expect to be punished if they disobey the laws of the land. This is mm-hmm. just and right. God tells us many times in his word, the Bible, that he will punish those who sin against him. This is God being just and righteous, doing what is right. God is a God of love. He rewards those who follow and obey him. And he is also a God of vengeance, but not Mm. revenge. He will punish appropriately those who sin against him or disobey him. Mm -hmm. However, to that, I would ask, is the kind of vengeance we see in the Old Testament actually just? So Adam Hamilton has a blog, and he brings up that there are numerous crimes for for which God, through the law of Moses, requires the death Mm -hmm. penalty— among these are sacrificing to a god other than Yahweh, persistent rebelliousness on the part of a How child, do you find that? a child who hits, wow. I mean, right, <laughs> right, a child who hits or curses his or her parents, working on the Sabbath. I actually didn't realize that working on the Sabbath would be, which makes me think when, when in the New Testament we see Jesus getting hit so hard for doing things on the like, Sabbath. Oh, okay, if you're basing that, it on this. It was like yeah. a bigger deal. Yeah, then maybe I understood. Premarital sexual intercourse and the requirement for a priest to burn his daughter alive if she became a prostitute. So it's like looking at that law, and I would 
this again would probably be mm-hmm. for another episode, but I'd be interested in knowing how did Jews actually perceive this law and maybe execute it, or did they, or or was it, you know, how did they interact with it, you know? Um, and how do Jews today interact with it? I, yeah. I would be very interested in knowing. I, I haven't studied that, but it does seem, at least to our literal mm-hmm. on-the-face reading, unfair, I guess, it's at so, least to me. It seems very um, extreme, like ridiculous, like way too extreme. Yeah, this doesn't seem yeah. just, just on this it reading. It doesn't, and we say, okay, well, Jesus clearly kind of churned things mm-hmm. around, but then I can see where the Marcion mm-hmm. thought of there's two gods or two modes mm-hmm. of God. I can see where that arises because it's like, wait, what changed mm-hmm. really? Uh, and why is this different? In his article, God's Violence in the Old Testament, Adam Hamilton says that if we understand the Bible as having been essentially dictated by God, then yes, we have no choice but to accept what is written as accurately describing God's actions and God's will. But if we recognize the Bible's humanity, that it was written by human beings whose understanding and experience of God was shaped by their culture, their theological assumptions, and the time in which they lived, then we might be able to say, in this case, the biblical authors were representing what they believed about God rather than what God actually inspired them to say. So, of course, you can see this is leaning away from Mm -hmm. inerrancy. He says, if we use Jesus's words and his great commandments as a colander, we'll see that these violent passages in the Hebrew Bible contradict not only these great commands, but the very life and ministry of Jesus, who was God's Mm -hmm. unmitigated word. So the impulse to kill, to destroy the enemy, and to put to death those who violate social norms is a continuing part of our world today. For those who believe in God, this violence is often perpetrated while asking for God's blessing and help, and at times it is even committed in the name of God. But violence is an equal opportunity illness in the human condition. Atheist regimes have sought to impose their view of utopia by slaughtering millions of people in the last century. It is the human story that throughout history we have tragically supported the use of violence to enforce the will of dictators, kings, and even the majority in democratic societies. What is true today was true in the ancient Near East, only without the terrifying weaponry that can destroy entire cities with a single bomb. So that's one view of his that he expresses. Um, He also mentions a different view. He says a second possible way of making sense of the violence in the Old Testament, particularly related to war, is to recognize that Moses, Joshua, and David were Israel's heroes. They were warrior saints. So these stories were written down long after their time to inspire others to courage and absolute commitment to God. An analogy would be the story of William Wallace of Scotland who died in 1305, but to this day is a legendary hero in Scotland. He fought against the English in the wars for Scottish independence, and every Scottish child is taught about Wallace. Memorials to him are found throughout the country. So it kind of becomes legend, right? And the uh, Hamilton suggests here, perhaps the stories of the conquest of Canaan, which we addressed earlier this season, but any of these particular stories, I think this one actually fits quite well, this idea of the bears, you know, and this a supernatural intervention. Perhaps these stories, written long after the time of these heroes, were meant to demonstrate courage, resolve, and faith, and to inspire later generations still struggling against their own enemies. These stories were written from the theological perspective of the ancient Near East, where gods sent heroes into battle and fought alongside them. So, you know, it's this is definitely... Christian, mm-hmm. like progressive Christian slash atheist mm-hmm. speculation on what could be happening. Definitely not inerrancy view. 
Um, but definitely just something to think about as we're interacting with the text here. I will say Christians in general, when it comes to revenge, often say, at least say, yeah. maybe not practice, uh, that it's not really for us to decide. And, you know, we read in Romans 12, do not take revenge, leave room for God's wrath. It's God's to avenge. It's God's to repay. Um, and there are passages, even in the Old Testament, that teach about kindness mm-hmm. to enemies. So if God has commanded us not to curse this would suggest that no curse could be pleasing to him. So it's uh, this idea that generally we don't think we are meant to be cursing people. We are meant to be loving even Mm -hmm. to our enemies. So even though Christians shouldn't curse people, uh, could God still curse people as in this example in second Kings? So one particular author I found said, no, he doesn't actually think so because this is a curse that was considered a covenant curse. It's very specific. It is a curse that would befall Israel should she fail to keep the stipulations found in the covenant with the Mosaic law. Um, But we are not under the jurisdiction of the law in the same way because we're under the new covenant as Christians. So it's just, it's kind of interesting. And again, it can be explained, but I can also very much see the idea of Mm -hmm. Marcion saying there's a significant shift in how we're thinking about laws is God different? Is there a different God? You know, what, how uh, we're told the law has been fulfilled in Christ, but what actually does that mean? So when it comes to divine vengeance, I think there's a lot, uh, we might need to kind of wrestle through if we believe God is vengeful Mm -hmm. in the Bible. But for this particular passage, I, I don't know how you're feeling. I really feel like the translation error uh, ties it up not not completely mm-hmm. satisfies it because it still to me seems somewhat unjust um but it ties it up a lot better than just an initial oh. reading yeah absolutely i think in this particular passage i i believe that we are suffering from mistranslation errors in, in our english reading and so when you kind of fix those and then you look at the greater context, context, especially if you say, well, these other things also plausibly could have been happening. Uh, it doesn't seem extreme if you look at it that way. Mm, yeah. So yeah. that is kind of, it's a, that's a satisfying answer to me. Definitely more satisfying than last <laughs> week's episode <laughs> with Abraham yes. and Isaac. And we're like, there's really no yes. satisfying yeah. o- option. <laughs> When we talk about just so. vengeance and God, and he looks at, you know, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And what does that mean? Does that mean, mm. like, vengeance, af- you know, in the afterlife? Does that mean all, all these things? It's like, what even does it mean? Uh, I don't know. I don't know exactly, though. Yeah. I do, like, one of the, um, the articles you were talking about, how uh, viewing, like, the Old Testament, the colander of, of Jesus, like, looking at it through that way. And that is... Mm how I personally try to do it. And so like I'm interpreting and evaluating things through Christ who is the word in that, in that way as a, Mm. as a Christian, but there's a whole lot more, especially if that's not how you're viewing things. So yeah, much, much wider discussion. Thank you so much for your research and for kind of, yeah fleshing this out for us a little bit because i was really going down the vengeance path and you sort of pulled us back into a little bit of a, a, a calmer yes, water cat purring also helps very very calm atmosphere cat purring i appreciate you so much as always. Well.
If this episode was meaningful to you, please consider supporting the show at patreon.com slash deconstructing the myth so that episodes like today's keep coming.